I'm Joanne Wilson, and this is Positively Gotham Gal, meaningful conversations with women entrepreneurs about their approach to life, business, and everything in between. Shannon McLay is the founder and president of Financial Gym, a company that provides personal training for your finances, regardless of what's in your bank account. Shannon told me all about her start as a floor trader for big banks, where she was often referred to as, quote unquote, the decoration, and how she powered through that glass ceiling, built strong networks, and transitioned into fundraising and starting her own business. So let's talk money. Yeah, let's do it. So you started off your career. I started off my career 18 years ago on a trading floor at Bank of America. And I tell people the whole Me Too movement, like that was definitely Yeah, I mean, me. yeah, I mean, being a trader, a woman yeah. on the banking floor 18 years ago. Yeah, a blonde, you had to be- boobs, curves. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, you can imagine, right? So um, where, where are you from originally? I'm from New York originally, and um, I went to school in North Carolina, and I graduated in 2000 when, you know, right before, like right at the peak of everything, and I mm-hmm. said I had five job offers. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And you always wanted to be in Always money. wanted to make money. Always yeah. wanted. I told people, I was like, I'm not going to change the world. I just want to make money. Um, yeah. You know what? Yeah. Knowing what you want to do, yeah, I think is ninety five percent of the battle. Yeah, and I like, and I'm type A overachiever. I was like, I'm gonna do. This. I never had an issue working with men either, so I was like, I didn't have a problem. My first week on the trading floor, one of the senior salespeople told my boss, "Thanks for decorating the trading floor." And I was like, I was such a blonde, I didn't know what that meant. I was like, that's that hilarious. Well, how many of <laughs> decorating. you, how many women were on the trading floor? There were you? 250 people on the trading floor in Charlotte, North Carolina for Bank of America, and there were 15 women. I used for to, the South, that's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean that point, you know? I remember counting them one time and I was like, oh, I've got to go to three hands. Like, wow, this is amazing. And you know, as a woman, it's like you usually have to wait in line of bathrooms. The best bathroom, women's bathroom ever is the women's bathroom on a trading floor. That's hilarious. There's, you have like a whole stall. You have the whole place to yourself. It's like the best. So was there anyone that took you under their wing and mentored you as a young woman that was interested in taking over the world with yeah. making a lot? of money (laughs) yeah actually my boss was um there was like he he crossed the line many times but um but he he was also the line in every way interesting yeah listen i mean i've been in where they just say stupid shit no every way but touching is a whole nother thing all of it yeah Yeah. all of it i can't even tell you how many people on the trading floor like the stories of the trading floor too like a lot of the senior people's wives started out as assistants or started out you know i know that right yeah which and then they know that they're still on the trading floor doing the same stuff yes Yes, fascinating. Yeah. So it's, how, a, it's a crazy world. So, so you, but I loved it. You I loved, loved it. it. I mean, I and what were you I thrived in it. Um, I was on the origination side for for debt. So companies would issue debt, and um, and we were trying to convince them to use Bank of America to be the underwriter for the process. So I was on like the sales origination side. Got it. And I loved it. Uh, so it was the bond side. And how long did you stay? Stick to I that? did that. I so I did that. I went into sales, and then I and you love this. In two thousand eight, I was like, I want to go into hedge funds because. I had eight years of, of fixed income, like investment banking experience. I was like, I want to, everyone's like doing the hedge fund thing. I was like, I want to do the hedge fund thing. So I left Bank of America to work for a small hedge fund in June of 2008. Wow. 
And then Lehman Brothers happened in September of 2008. And did you stay in the South? You came up to I New went York. back to New York, yeah. So I, I, I had in this process of eight years working for the bank, I moved to two different locations, got married, had a kid. I'm originally from New York. I wanted to come back to my family and honestly raise my kid in New York. So we moved back to New York and I was with a small hedge fund. And yeah, so then 2000, so Lehman Brothers happened, the Madoff happened in December of 2008. The fund closed in January of 2009. So you didn't, you didn't even make it a full year. Yeah. Well, I, I, when I took the job, I was like, it was, it was also run by a family office. And I said, you know what, if the hedge fund thing doesn't work out, maybe like I'm a smart person. So maybe like they'll want me to work for um, the family, for the family yeah. and I'll just stay on. And that's actually what happened. So it was a commercial real estate fund. So they ended up taking on all this property. I managed a hotel in like Michigan, and we like I had a lot of great experiences. That's interesting. And how long did you do that for? I did that for two years, and then I got to the point, and I was like, and I was like, this is it. Like, I this is a very fascinating, interesting job. And then I got a call from my former boss, Bank of America. So now at this time, in my departure, Bank of America had now merged with Merrill Lynch. Right. And so everything was like shuffled up or shuffled around, and um, and they were like, we're a new group. Do you want to come back? And we have this group working with the Merrill Lynch Financial Advisors. And I was like, no. I literally said, no, I don't want to come back because it was so dysfunctional at the bank. But then they came back with money. And I was like, I will come back if you pay me you know, significantly more. And they did. So. And it was a different job. It was a different type job. Yeah. Right. And it was working with Merrill Lynch. back guys. is hard. Yeah. You know, I mean, met people over the years who have returned to something. Um, and I just feel like it's important to move forward. Yeah, I, I agree. And I was like, that's, I was very hesitant to move back in this process, though, of, um, so now at this point, I'm 32. And, um, and I tell people all the time, I, when I hit 30, I was like, I had all these friends who were having these breakdowns because they didn't have a good job. They weren't married. They didn't have a kid. And they were like, oh my God, now I'm 30. And I was married, kid, great job, house. And I was like, 30s, easy, breezy, like, nope. Yeah, like I have everything you could want. Then I turned 30 and a half and I was like, I don't want any of this. Like, well, it's very funny. I, I had a very myself. good friend who told me once when I, I remember when I turned 30, I was like, wow. And she's like, it's not about turning 30. It's about turning 31. Yeah. Yeah. I was literally like, where am I? Like, what did I sign up for? Like, I hate the husband. I hate the kid. I hate the house. I hate the job. Like, what am I doing? And and it was funny in the hedge fund, we, we had this uh, land use attorney who was helping us and he was this life coach and he was like, gave me this book about happiness. And I read the book and it was like 400 pages of a lot, like written by a Buddhist monk. So it was a lot of, of woo-woo stuff, yeah. right? And I, But 400 pages in, the, the whole point of it was that the key to find ultimate happiness is helping other people and not expecting anything in return. Like, that's it. And it was like, one, it was an, one of my Oprah aha moments. I was like, I want to do that. Like, this, is, this feels like what I should be doing, not making money anymore. But that was just like tuck that, tuck that in the back of my head. So when the bank came back, I was like, I don't want to. But I was thinking about like what I wanted to do next. And I was like, you know, the bank is big. There's a lot of unhappiness there, <laughs> certainly post 2008, 2009. I said, maybe this is like what like it's leading me to the next thing. Like I knew that job wasn't the job, but I was like, I think it's going to lead me to the next thing. Well, that's interesting because I think that's very forward thinking. Yeah. Because now as I talk to people that are in their 20s, <laughs> it's like, yeah, so that two years here, two years there, two years there, all the dots connect. Yeah. Um, and they think about all the dots connect. You yeah. know, these are learning experiences. I've learned I'm ready for next. 
Um, and people didn't do that in the past. No. And it, it was like you got the job and stayed there forever. I mean, that was... You got the I, old watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I, I, I worked with people at the bank who were there for 20-something years. Oh, and it was for like, sure. And I felt bad for them when they got fired, you know, like when 2008. And I was like... And that was part of why I went to work for the hedge fund because I was like, I don't want to be this. Like, I don't want to get 20 years where I only have this experience and... Um, and that's it. And then I lose my job. Well, I think the thing not wanting to be that is what most people end up leaving. Not because they have ahas, but they look around and they think, yeah, this is this is not what I want to be. Yeah, that was me. I was like, I don't want to be scared of losing my job and being miserable because I only have one skill set or one area that I'm familiar with. So um, yeah, so I ended so up back. going back. So I went back and but I was you like, didn't go back to the South. No, it was in New York. So the job was in New York and I was working with the Maryland financial advisors. And at the time I was like, you know, I need a financial advisor. I, I was working with them and I, I was getting to the point where I was, we were about to buy a house in New York. The kid, you know, I was like, maybe I should be investing. And, um, and I, and I want to talk to somebody. And I said, this is like the dirty little secret that is very common in financial services. I worked on a trading floor and I had no idea how to invest my own personal money. You know, I didn't know what an ETF was. And I worked on a trading floor. And I remember telling people, I have this cash, what should I do? And they're like, oh, just put an ETF. And I was like, okay, I'm going to put an ETF. And I remember going on my Fidelity account and like searching ETF and all like 15 pages of crap came up. And I was like, I don't even know what these are. So yeah, well, I think most people fake it till they make it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was me, right? I was like, I I was like, I, yeah, I, I know what an ETF was. And so I and there's uh, verbiage in every business. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can go to a board meeting for or, you know, listen to a, a pitch from a, a startup who's talking about their CAC, you know, and some people think, what the hell is, what is that? that? You know? And it's just like, but once you get the verbiage down, yeah, then you're you like, know, okay. exactly what it is. Yeah, it's you know? learning a language. It's just like learning a language. You don't know the word in another language, but once you learn the word in another language, yeah, you're more comfortable. And you can make decisions. Yeah. So yeah. you went back to the bank. So I went back to the bank and then I'm like, I need an advisor. So I'm working with the advisors and I was like, you know, I'm going to, this is great. I'm working with them. So I'm going to, like I get to interview my advisor. Like I'm going to figure out who I want to work with. And in the process, I tell people of looking for myself, I became woke to the advisory space. I, you know, I, I like I'd been in it, but I was like, 85% are men, and I would say there's nothing wrong with that. I married a man, I birthed a man. You know, I love men. I'm not like a man hater, but I was like, 85% are men, and mostly old white men. And I was like, if somebody wants something different, like I didn't care about working with a man because I've been working with them my whole career. But I was like, if somebody wants something different, especially a woman, you should be able to find it. Like it was like, I felt like this injustice, like you should be able to find different. And so I thought, if you can't beat them, join them. So I became a Maryland advisor. The funny story about that is I interviewed with seven men to get the job and six out of the seven of them said no. And what was their reasoning? Their reasoning was they didn't think I could sell. Because um, I'd never sold, uh, I'd never, I've been selling, and I told, I told them I've been selling my whole career, but they're like, well, you've never sold, you know, investments to an individual, and it's very personal. And my thesis to them was like, okay, yes, you're right, I've never sold this. But 85% of the population looks like this. I'm over here in the 15%. I'm not going to win all this, but I'm going to get something just by looking like this. Like, 100%. I'm just just walking in the room or making a phone call. I'm going to be different. So I'm going to get something from that. And and I was like, so yeah, I'm confident of that. And so the, the only seventh. Person, the seventh was my boss. Oh. Yeah. And he told me when I started, he's like, I used to chip on you. So don't let me down. And I was like, 
Okay, and I thought it was because I pushed back for a higher salary, but then I found out he, the chip was like even hiring me because nobody wanted to hire me. And I found out that no one wanted to hire me because a year later I was in the top like 0.1% of Merrill new hires and they were, were the HR person was interviewing me because they wanted to know how to replicate me. They're like, you're doing so well. You're the top of the new group. Like we just want to know like how to hire you. And in the conversation with the HR person, I was like, she was like, you know, I give the same resume to the hiring managers. And it, one's a guy, one's a woman. In my mind, they're the same person. It's like the same experience on paper. And they always pick the guy. Of course they do. And yeah, and I was like, ah. And then the light bulb went off. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't think I was going to get hired. I went to my, like, literally went to his office. And I was like, was I not going to get hired? And he's like, no, nobody wanted to hire you. And I was like, but I'm like doing really well. He's like, yeah, I mean, obviously we realize that's a mistake now. And I, and, and I said, and you want to know how to replicate me? I was like, you need to hire me first before you can replicate me. And, but they weren't going to do that. No. And do you think that was because of, you were the number one, fear of their jobs? Um, or just comfort level that they only could see someone like themselves on the other side of the table? Yeah. they There, it, there was definitely like a boys club. I mean, there was so much of that. And so I was the only new hire in the group. And I, I mean, I had confidence in myself. I knew what I was going to do. I knew how to play the game. I, I didn't make a single cold call. Like I did, I was like, and I told my boss, I said, do I have to cold call? Cause I'm never doing that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and he was like, as long as you produce, I don't care what you do. And I was like, okay, I will produce, but I'm not going to cold call. Cause I had, you know, network and stuff like that. So they, they, they showed all of our rankings. Um, and like what every month it was like where you stood and I was doing well in the new group. So I remember this, like, there's nothing wrong with Staten Island, but this Staten Island kind of meathead guy who was like high up as well. Cause he was like that type of guy they like. Um, he came over to my cubicle and he's like, so Shannon, you, you know, you're doing really well. Like what, what is it? Uh, like, what are you doing? That's like, like what, what are you doing? Well, yeah. Do so you know what I said? Count me in. I said, Oh, what am I doing? I said, I give a free blowjob to everybody who signs up with me. <laughs> and he was like, is it the worst part of the story? Is he paused? Like, he was like, oh. Uh oh, <laughs> like, oh yeah. that might be oh, right. Okay. And I was like, what am I doing? I said, I'm doing exactly what you're doing, but only better. Like, what do you think I'm doing? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> then I had another time where I did a women's networking event at my Merrill Lynch office and it was like, great. And we were talking about negotiating, like all this like power stuff. And this older trader or advisor comes by and he's like, what's going on in there, Shannon? Are you having a Tupperware party? And I was like, and for, and it's funny because I thought that was funny. I was like, who has a Tupperware party anymore? Like, that's ridiculous. And I went back in the room and I told the women, I was like, this is funny, guys. Like, this is what he said. And this one woman was like, oh, my God, are you going to report him to HR? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, this was nothing. I was, you know, going to talk about me, too. I was like. I was like, if he said that with his pants around his ankles, like maybe I would talk to HR. I was like, having a Tupperware party is like the least offensive. Well, I've you know, what's interesting is everybody has a different level. A spectrum, yeah. Of what they're going to the put threshold, up with, right? yeah. The threshold of what you're going to let slide off your back yeah. versus My threshold. others is very different. Your threshold's insanely high. Yeah. Mine is pretty <laughs> high too. Yeah. I, was, I mean, I worked in, a, uh, I ran a company and this guy was beyond and I, f I finally pulled him aside because I was his number two. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you're going to get sued. Yeah. Like something's going to happen here. What is coming out of your mouth <laughs> and what is going through your fingertips is not appropriate behavior. How did he react? He was like, eh, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, I was like, what okay, are you talking about? You yeah. know, but, you know, I think that 
my threshold is so right. high. And, I mean, and where another woman would have been like just more. Well, that high. woman who was like, I would go to HR. And I was like, where have you been working? Like, go to HR. I mean, literally at our holiday party. But demeaning and offensive. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, literally at our holiday party two months before that, one of the the advisors, one of the top advisors in the office, like, was like, how old are you? And whatever I was at the time, he's like, you know, you're old enough to be my mistress. And I was like, and here's the sad thing. I knew what he was talking about. It's this French equation for having, it's like, take your age, divide it in half, and like, for a guy. Take your age, divide in half, and add seven or something like that. And I knew this because I'd heard it more than once in my career from other people. Oh, my God. Yeah, or I was too old to be a mistress. Or I was too young to be a mistress. Like, I heard it more than once. Like, I knew what he was talking about. So what was the jumping point? So here yeah, you Yeah, so are. I'm in Merrill. I'm doing great. And I'm like, this is great. And, I, and to work with a Merrill advisor, you had to have 250000 in assets. And I was like, great. And so I was doing, yeah, I mean, I was like, okay, like, so I was bringing in people like that. And I, and, but at the same time, and I remember actually one of my mentors, he was like, don't like pre-screen all your calls. Like, don't even get coffee with somebody unless you know they have money. Cause it's just a waste of time. And I said, I was a big rebel. I was like, I'm going to meet with whoever will meet with me. I got time. And so I was having all these meetings with, I end up calling them my pro bono clients. Cause I meet with them. They're like, Hey, can you help me with my money? I'm like, yeah, let's, let's sit and chat. They're like, I have 250,000 in student loan debt. Um, or I have a thousand dollars I want to invest, and I would like laughing in my head. I was like, I cannot bring this client to Merrill. Like they don't even count. You actually literally don't even count as a client if you have less than two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, you literally don't count. I mean, it was like crazy. So I said, I don't. I can't really do anything for you here, but I want to help you. So like, let me do a plan for you. It's like easy for me. I'll just you know put it together. So I was doing all these. It was like my dirty little secret. I was doing helping, helping all these people, pro bonos. But there's a long tail to that. Yes. So I was doing that and um, and I got to the point and I said, I literally was doing that. I, I said I became the worst advisor ever. I loved people with no money versus the people with money because I was really loving the pro bono business. And I had this, I have a week, next aha moment of my life where um, it started out earlier in the week with a couple, they had over a million dollars with me and their portfolio was down 3%. And they were bitching about where all their money was. And I said, I tell people I spent an hour of my life making them feel better about being a little less rich. And it just felt really soul sucking. And I like these people to this point, but I was like, there are really bigger problems than like, where's your, you know, and they're both high earners and whatever. So um, I left that and I was like, I guess this is what I'm like signed up for. And, um, and then two days later, I did a meeting with this woman, pro bono client. I gave a plan to her, very similar to the ones we have at the financial gym. And I just told her, here's how much you need to be saving. Here's how you handle a credit card debt. Like, here's all these things. And at the end of the meeting, she literally stopped. She looked me in the eye and she said, you know, you're saving my life. Right. And I was like, oh, like oh. this feels so much better. And it was like, it like all came together. I was like, I need to build a business helping people like her because every financial services company wants that couple on Tuesday. Everybody, they're all falling over themselves to help people with money. Nobody wants to help the people without money. Without money. But if you help the people without money, they eventually make money. Yes. Or the other thing, too, was all these people kept telling me was, I'll pay you to help me with my money. So I tell people my altruistic side was like, and the wanting to find happiness, that whole journey, wanted to help these people. But then my capitalistic side was like, 
I have to find a way to take their money because they want to pay me. I just don't have a way to take their money. And I always say it's a misnomer that they call it the financial services industry because the only way they make money is selling product. No, it, it is be not financial a fi- products industry. Right. It's, it is a financial products yeah, industry. Financial products it's industry. about selling products to yeah. people. CDs, yes. credit yes. cards. If I can't sell you a product, I don't want to work with you. So people who are building their wealth and managing it, they don't know how to help them because they don't know how to make enough money off of them because that's their right. Well, their it goes model. back to the original point, which is people really don't know what they're doing. Yes, they don't. Right. And so if you teach people to be financially savvy, then they'll be happy to pay for the curriculum. Then they can have the products, right? Like then you could have actually more products to give them if they have the money and the wherewithal to like figure it out, to put it all together. And I remember thinking like, it's unfair that all this knowledge I have from my Merrill Lynch, you know, all the training I have is not available for people who really need it. And um, and at the time I was going through all this, I was on a weight loss journey. I lost over. I was. I used to be over two hundred and twenty pounds after having that that little boy. Um, and it was. It got to the point where he was. Uh, he was five, and I was telling somebody like, oh, I have, you know, all this weight, and they're like, oh, it's just baby weight. And I was like, my baby can read now, so I think there's like no excuses. I need to get my life together. So um, I got to lock it down. And I so I did Weight Watchers and working out. And and I thought about. It, I was like, you know, when I wanted to get physically healthy. There's so many places I go to physically healthy. All of us. There's so many options we go to get physically healthy. But my dilemma with these pro bonos and in general is like if people want to get financially healthy, where would they go? Like, and I thought they would go to a financial gym. But I was like, I didn't have a place to send them to. And that was my dilemma. I was like, I didn't have to say, hey, go to the financial gym. Like, I can't help you at Merrill, but here's a place where you could go. There's not that place. No. There is not that place. There is now. It is, there is now. Yeah. <laughs> and that is interesting in regards to the banking industry, which is so old school and completely not caught up in the future. And even with all of these apps and that they can help you figure out your financial journey. I have, you can imagine over the course of building this business, this is now five years in the making, um, how many men told me, why can't you just be an app or a bot or, you know, a website? And I said, okay, there's plenty of apps and bots and websites, but we still have a financial crisis in the U.S. I mean, literally 70% of people live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And not even talking about student loans and, you know, not saving for retirement. And there's so much data on that. I said, there's plenty of apps and it's not working. And what we've seen at the financial gym and actually talking to human beings and having human interaction is that the two words we hear all the time in the gym are fear and shame. Men and women, like I'm afraid, I'm afraid I'm going to run out of money. I have a woman who's making three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. She's like, I'm afraid I'm going to be eating cat food in retirement. I was like, you are not going to be eating cat food. All right, we've got clients who started the gym with literally zero dollars in the bank, and I, I thought it's like, and they're making hundred thousand dollars a year in New York, and um, zero dollars in the bank, and um, or like I'm ashamed that I make you know fifty thousand dollars a year and I'm not making enough, or I'm ashamed I make. $400,000 a year and I have $100 in the bank. There's so much so much fear and shame because money is really the ultimate taboo. We well, um, money is a huge taboo. It's I mean, ultimate. people don't talk about money. People don't talk to their children about money. Nope. I mean, money's a it's very so, weird thing. It is it is so weird and there's so much emotion tied into it and we had a starter gym before we did our raise last year and it was we called it the janky gym because it was So tell me about the janky oh, yes. gym, but I'm just curious. So, <laughs> yeah, gym. So, oh, yeah. so, so you yeah. decided Okay, epiphany. I got. I'm going to help the world yeah. with this concept called the financial gym. Yeah, financial gym. I knew it right away. I was like, "This is it." This was five years ago now, and I was like, 
and I saw it clear. It was like everything was clear. Financial gyms across like H and R Block, but fun and cool. Like you walk in, totally and like, get you know. It. So that was five years ago, and I tell people I'm so glad I don't know the VC world, all of it, because like you can imagine my model is people and places, which is like which is nobody wants very to invest few in that. VCs. No, no it's a wants, very different model. Yeah, no one was like what. Um, so, but that was my, that was five years ago, and I said to people, I thought I was like I'm going to raise money right away. I want to gyms across the country. Like I think this is the best idea ever, and I still do. And I, I got advice from people. They're like, look, just prove the concept works. Like you're going to help people. People are going to pay you to help them with their money. Like, how does that work? How much do you charge? Like, all well, these H&R things. H&R Block already does it, basically. I mean, yeah. the model, you know the model works because yeah. of all your years. Yeah, because, I mean, H&R Block's public. You can see how much people are paying to talk to. And I would never go to an H&R Block accountant, but, like, there are plenty of people who do. So, um, so yeah, I was like, but I was like, okay, yeah, I'll figure it out. So I did, I created, like, a next-gen financial. People find me on LinkedIn. They think I did two businesses. That's really just my feeder company. That was me bootstrapping it. So I left. I was like, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to call it the financial gym because I don't know if this is going to work. So I was like, I could always go back to the bank. There's always six figures to be made. So I left. um, and, And so this is now October of 20, October of 2013. Um, My sister's in a book club and she's <laughs> and she's like hey my she's telling her friends like my sister's starting this company helping people do you you know what do you what do you you know does anyone reach out to her and one of her friends did and she's client number one of the gym we talk about she's been with me five years now but so she reached out she was getting her master's and she was about to take out student loan debt so she was like yeah I want to talk to you and that was uh and so she did it and then her and then client two was in the book club and then client three is her boyfriend and client three starts with me. And he's like, they were all, they both just, the first two just did like a starter plan. And then he was like, I need somebody to kick my ass. Like he was an attorney. He's like, I need somebody to help me make more money. And in his first meeting, he was like, I want to propose to Jen. So I want to save for a ring. Meanwhile, he had like nothing saved and all this credit card debt. And I was like, what if you don't have enough savings? How are you going to pay for the ring? He's like, I'm going to borrow it from my parents. I was like, you are a grown adult. You are a grown ass man. You're not borrowing money from your parents to get your future wife a ring. You are going to do this yourself. So anyway, they, Jen and Tim are now both married. They actually just came into the gym. They're on five years now. They're pregnant with their first child, buying the house. It's like all these great things. That's but um, yeah, so they, so they were coming, but it was like, I was charging like not, you know, $250 for a plan. And meanwhile, I was going through my own personal savings. Of like, course. Yeah. Like, so I was like, okay. But like enjoying work, the work. And then they kept working with me. I kept thinking it was like this one-year plan. Like we'll get to a year and then you graduate. And I was getting to a year with some of these clients. And then I was like, okay, like what do you want to do now? And they were like, well, we can still keep working together, right? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. So now I'm in year two, but I'm like running through all my personal life. My 401k, I joke now when you go to the gym, you're sitting in my 401k. Like, <laughs> I hope you enjoy my 401k because it's here. It's non-existent elsewhere. I went through all of that. I remember having to tell, he's my now ex-husband, but telling my ex-husband, I was like, I've gone through everything. I have nothing. <laughs> Crying. And I was like, I think I need to go back to the bank. This is this was, uh, 2015 now, two years into this journey. And he's like, no, I think you're onto something. Like, you need to keep doing it. Like, you can use my 401k money, like my IRA money. And I was like, okay. And then literally a month later, I had coffee with my former boss at Merrill Lynch and he was let go from Merrill. He's like, I have this severance payout. Like, what do you think I should do? How should I invest it? I, was like, me. I said, I think you should invest in a small financial services startup. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And he, so he gave me my first $100,000 check and, and, and on the envelope said, knock him dead. 
and I still have that envelope. And then I was like, well, now this is real. That Then I was like, I, so people ask, when did the gym start? I was like, technically five years ago, because I've been building this model. But really, Once 2015. Check. Yeah, 2015 yeah. is the start date. So 2015, I then I got the financial gym name. I got the trademark, certified financial trainers, putting that out there. And then with the gym concept out there, I was getting more people because people were like, oh, I get it. Like, I don't know what Next Gen Financial is, but just even the financial gym name, people were like, I get it. Like, they just it made the connection quick. So business was growing. And I was like, I want to hire another trainer looking for investors. Everybody's like, no. And I wanted to build a gym, you know, like a space. Not And people are like, why not a WeWork and whatever? And I said, people know they're in a WeWork. There is something very emotional around money. And it's like, you, I wanted to create a safe space for I people agree. to come it to. It should be separate. Yeah. So I said, I need a safe space. So I went back. No one gave me money. It went back to Bob, my angel investor. Is like, no, he's giving me money. And even he was like, do you really need to have a space? And I was like, yeah, I really need to have a space. So he gave me the next 200000 And um, the funny thing about that is we did that with no documents. Like he, That's amazing. Two yeah. bankers. Yeah. But I, I tell people this, the value of networking, right? Like I didn't know nine years ago, that nine years before that, when I met Bob, that he was gonna, I was going to start a business, he was going to invest in it. But he knew my work ethic. He's like, if I was going to give my money to anybody, it's you. Like, I know how hard you work and I love your idea. And he's like, I just love the stories because I would tell him all the stories of and our clients. And he trusted you. Yeah, and he trusted so me. So you took $300,000 from him with no documents. <laughs> I hope you've, you've gone back and repapered that. Yes. So well, we, so then last year when we were raising money, we did a convertible note initially. And the attorney was, I was like, can we put Bob's 200000 in this convertible note? He's like, yeah, Bob will sign it. I was like, yeah, Bob will sign it. So um, so his was, a, you know, we just backdated the convertible note. Or like his interest was backdated. Right, exactly. Not the note. Um, we did it from that time frame. So yeah, so he, so that was, so then we opened up the Janky Gym. And we were on, so Janky Gym was on Fifth Avenue. And, and this is what I tell people going back to the taboo. We were, li- you could literally see the Museum of Sex from our window on Fifth Avenue. And I said, So you're like in the 20s. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, They are, they literally have dildos in the window. And we're the taboo kids on the block. Cause we're talking about how much people make and credit scores and like all that. And we're the taboo kids on the block. And, you know, I love saying, that. and it's just true. And we see that so much. It's like, People, couples coming in who have been married 10 years and they, neither of them know how much is in the, each other's bank accounts. So where that, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. At all. Yeah. So where are you finding these people? How are they coming to you? How big is your place? Yeah. And what's your plan for national expansion? Yeah. So we, so we, so last year, so talk about money too. So last year we, we put, get the janky gym open. We're, it's still just word of mouth. I have a podcast to call Mart- Martinis and Your Money, Living a Better Life, One Cocktail at a Time. I said drinking, money, and men are like my three favorite things. <laughs> and I love combining them all when I can. Um, but so we got getting like people from that. And it's all just been word of mouth till this point, even last year. And but then How I was like, your space? Um, the space at the time was like 2,000. We had the, the whole floor was like 2,000 square feet. Ikea furniture, like my employee number one, we joke, she put together all of the furniture of, of gym number one. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, Shannon, in future gyms, can I not put together the furniture? <laughs> so we just opened our headquarters in, in February in Chelsea Flatiron area. I call it Chatiron. And um, I told her, I was like, Bridge, you don't have to put together any furniture. Sure. Um, but so, so we opened that. And then, but I was starting to run out of money though, because um, I, I knew I needed to raise more than Bob's. 200 because I hired my first person and we had the space and we're just going through money like every startup. And are the people you're hiring 
former bankers or what kind of people you hire? Yeah. So people ask me, what's a financial trainer? I said, a financial trainer is somebody who's compassionate, empathetic, wants to help people. And fourth is an interest in personal finance. And because I tell people, I can teach four. I can teach you ETFs and, and life insurance. I can teach you that. I can't teach compassion and empathy. And the thing is, we have clients coming in all the time. We joke our workout equipment is wine and Kleenex. Like, we have people coming in like uh, crying because they don't want to open their mail, you know, or check their credit score. I had a woman come in. She's like, she's third. She was, no, she's 52 years old. She had this big bag. She's like, I don't have my Kleenex, but I have my wine. She pulls out a bottle of wine from this bag. And I was like, okay, we have both. So you can keep your wine for later. Like, let's just chat. She sits down, starts hysterically crying, hysterically crying. And she's like, and I like, and I, yeah, I put the Kleenex in front of her. I'm like, I don't even know what's going to happen. She's like, I don't want to check my credit score. And I was like, okay, like, we don't have to check your credit score. She's like, I do not want to check my credit score. And I was like, okay, like, we want to check the credit. I was like, let's just go into some background now. So she like married, fake married this guy who has, she said, had this whole Peter Pan syndrome. She signed up all these credit cards with him. He spent $80,000 on credit oh cards. She had $80,000 of credit card debt. And she's making $300,000 a year, but her minimum payments on the cards now are $3,000 a month. And he's not helping with anything. So she's like, I don't want to check my score. And she's telling me, and I'm like, I said, I think we're going to have to check your score because I don't know whether to tell you to file for bankruptcy or that we could just get a personal loan and kind of figure this out. And she was like, okay, yeah. She's like, but you have to log in. And I was like, okay, like, let's just log in to you know Credit Karma and do it. And so... We do, and she's got a, a 720. And I was like, she's like, oh. And then she stops. She takes this emotional deep breath. <sighs> she's like, this is the first time I breathed in a year. And I was like, wow. Like, well, first of all, keep breathing. <laughs> like, and this, we're going to fix this. And literally, we applied for a SoFi personal loan. She got for $80,000. Her pay- monthly payment went from 3000 to 1000 Huge difference. And yeah. And now she's going to have it like paid off in like seven years. Like has an actual time. Like, because that $3,000 a month was just going to her minimum payments. It wasn't even was tackling the debt. Right. Taking it down. Yeah. So anyway, last, going back to last year, March, I was running through money. and I, But I was talking to people about investing. You can imagine, I'm like, Every venture capital person is like, I hate everything about this. Oh, sure. And we weren't in um, our space yet. You know, when they would come to the space, they didn't really get it. I was like, this is not what a gym is going to look like. This is just what we could afford right now. So we were not really getting it done. And um, and so I'm running out of money. And I literally, March 15th of last year, I paid payroll to Bridget, my trainer. I paid myself. And then I had to pay the gym right back from my my own money because the gym had more bills than I did coming up. And there was that night I cried. I went to bed March 15th. There was no money between me and the gym that night. I had no money in my personal account and no money because it was in transit. And it was only like $2,500. I wasn't paying myself a lot. It was like $3,000 between the two of us. And there's nothing. And I was like, just cried. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know, like, what's going to happen next. And literally the next day, I got a $15,000 check from a friend. He was like, look, just, like, you don't even have to pay me back. I don't want you to see you fail. Like, you've come this far. Like, just make it work. And then the next day, March 17th, because St. Patrick's Day, because I'm Irish, and I say the luck of the Irish, I had a $50,000 wire come in from somebody, an angel I was talking to about 
investing. So I went from zero to 65. And then last year we did our seed round. You're in a very different spot right now. Yeah. And what are people, what are you charging these people? So our average client's paying $85 a month. And um, so about $1,000 a year. And then we have some clients who are like higher level clients paying $210 a month. And, and so how much can you make out of each particular gym? Yeah, each gym at $2.5 million. So we can... Um, and we're, and we're pushing that. And then we have uh, the plan is gyms across the country. It's always been gyms across the country. And um, and to do that, we have we have we work with clients virtually. As I was well. going to ask, do yep. you do that as well? We do. So we work with clients virtually. They can find you online. Yeah, they, they can find us online, Google, Skype, Hangouts. Although it's funny because like some of our clients don't want to have you know the video. They they're just on the phone. I have clients who've been with me three and a half years now. And you don't know what they look like. I have no idea what they look like. Well, yeah. money is a very funny thing. Yeah, it is. It's but you're making it more accessible for people to yeah. really understand their capital. Well, yeah, we want people to not. There's no reason to have fear and shame. I mean, that's what we see, and, and that's like the message my trainers deliver. That's what we deliver. There's no reason why we should feel that way because everything's fixable. I always tell people with, with finances, short of death, everything's fixable. Bad credit, bankruptcies, no money, no investing, no saving. Everything is fixable. It's just like, wait, it's just a matter of how much work is it going to take to fix it. Right. But you have to be savvy fixable. about what you're going to be able to do. Yeah. And have a plan and have, have goals and, you know, they're all those things. So that's like, that's what my trainers do. And we've seen, we call it gym magic with our, our clients start with us. And we always say like they, the stories might start sad, but they don't end sad. So we have people come in and it's like, they have $0 in the bank. Or I remember I did a, a warm-up call two years ago with this couple. It was a Friday night and they were like, they had four kids. Um, the, the baby was little. I could hear the baby. And they were like, we they had $2,000 in the bank. She wanted to quit working. That's stressful. Yeah. Four kids, $2,000 in the bank. She wanted to quit working, wanted to have a fifth kid. And I'm like on the phone thinking, these people are crazy. Like this is never going to happen. And they worked with my trainer, Bridget. They're, they, they've been with us two years. Bridget's like... In the first three months, they were up something like $17,000. He ended up getting a new job, making more money. She was – recently, she's like, Shannon, they're pregnant with a fifth kid. I was like, I, I was like, I can't believe this. And this is two years later. And I remember doing their call thinking, there is no way they're going to do any of this. And so when our clients have these things happen, they put the plan and they start working it. We call it gym magic. Yeah, everyone when, has different goals. Yeah. Everyone has a different journey. Everyone has different financial needs. Yeah. And when they start to come together and the things you want, we're like, oh, that's gym magic. And what we have now is we have a gym magic fund. So when we opened the headquarters gym, we have this wall and it went and it, it's our design feature and every gym will have a gym magic wall and it goes up in black and white and gray and then we have puzzle pieces and each puzzle piece represents a $25 donation to the gym magic fund and so it's for our clients who've experienced gym magic our community our financial gym community to give back to our clients who need a little magic in their life and we've raised over seven thousand dollars for this fund and it's super cool it's not tax deductible we've paid off student loan payments we've paid off car payments we bought a car seat for a couple who had to move back in with her parents because they were pregnant with a second kid. We bought dinner for this couple that there was a 10-year wedding anniversary and they told their trainer, we're not going to go out to eat because we're, we're saving money. And we bought them dinner for their anniversary. That's like, great. So many great things. That's so, very cool. Yeah. Well, congratulations what you built. Thank you. It's really smart. Thank you. Well, you know, you can imagine, though, that a lot of people don't feel like that in the VC space. Yeah, but, you know, I do think that we're going through a new thought process in regards to investments and what they can do. I mean, just like there were VCs that never wanted to invest in 
consumer products. And now guess what? They do invest in consumer products. And so I think it's super cool. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that's my message too for any entrepreneurs, especially female entrepreneurs is like, don't let this, this space like dictate how you, your model works. You dictate the space. Yeah. If it's a successful business and you can prove a model, there will always be an investor. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. I can't wait. Congratulations. Thank you. All right. Nice. Thanks for coming today. Thanks for having me. A huge thanks to Shannon for joining me on the podcast this week. You can learn more about Financial Gym at financialgym.com.